This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. On Sunday, I was having my coffee, reading my New York Times, and I came across a headline, Some Colleges Don't Produce Big Earners, Are They Worth It? I thought that was looked like an interesting piece. It was, in fact, very much an interesting piece written by Ron Lieber. And I'm reading along, and lo and behold, there is a substantial part of that piece that is devoted to the views of Ed Wingenbach, who is the president of Hampshire College. So I got in touch with the president of Hampshire College and said, hi, I know your students are coming this week, but you probably don't have anything else to do, but how, so how about coming on our show? <laughs> and lo and behold, here he is with us this morning, President Wingenbach. So much, so much uh, uh, thanks to you, so many thanks to you for coming on our show. Uh, I, I'd like to read back to you a couple of the quotes in the Times. Let's find out if they're accurate, and then s- so. uh, have you uh, have you expand on them a bit, if you would, please. Excellent. According to Ed Wingenbach, Hampshire's surveys of incoming students show that when to rank their top future life values from a list of options, being well off financially ranks seventh. Uh, He said that he has confidence in his students' long-term prospects. He pointed to research that shows that by age 40, people who choose liberal arts degrees like the one Hampshire offers see their incomes catch up with those who major in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And it goes on from there. This was a piece about whether going to college uh, results in more income and how quickly it results in more income compared to those who didn't and don't go to college, and I would appreciate your big-picture view of this, and then we'll get into some of the specifics, and then I want to talk about Hampshire as well and how you're doing. But let's start with this article. You're, okay. The big, the big picture, please. Yeah, so I think, I mean, the big picture is, I think, I, first of all, I don't think we should minimize the challenges that students and their families face in paying for college, right? You and I were just talking about this right before we went on, that you know, the, the, the burden of paying for college over the last 30 years has shifted dramatically from a public good to a private good, right? And it's become much more of an expense that the student and their family have to take on. So it really does matter uh, to, to think about whether or not that investment is going to be worthwhile. I think that how we measure what that investment is is much more complicated, though, than just short-term earnings, um, and so if you look at this, this article in particular is uh, looking at one metric, which is how much, uh, how much annual income is a student making six years out of, out of high school, um, and there's also some data on eight and 10 years, compared to if they went to college or didn't. And I think that's not a particularly good measure, right? So you know, how, much, how, much you're, how much you're making six years out of high school at a lot of colleges, a lot of students haven't quite finished or they've just graduated at many, at many colleges and universities in, around the country. And then as you pointed out, and I point out in that article, over time, uh, a college degree tends to, tends to have a very, very significant income premium. So I think the data on whether college is Let's worth Let's just translate that good. back a little bit. Yeah. If you go to college with a liberal arts degree, that your earnings over a lifetime statistically will be much, much higher than if you just or you, a person, graduates high school. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's, that's true of the whole range of degrees uh, and, and, and areas of study. One of the, the quote that you were uh, reading here from that article is, you know, if you compare liberal arts degrees, which would include sort of sciences and mathematics, to pre-professional degrees, uh, what you see is that people who have very specific pre-professional training tend to outperform in the first couple of years, but then they kind of stagnate over time. And the people with the liberal arts degrees, the more you know, encompassing view of the world, tend to catch up and then surpass the really peak earning periods. And so you know, both of those approaches really pay back in terms of uh, the investment, the financial investment, to say nothing of all of the other huge advantages of a college education, which we talk about a little bit in that article as well. Right. I must say that I was resistant to the article the entire time I was reading it because, to me, the college experience 
sure, the education, mm -hmm. the formal education is important, but it's the understanding of people. It's the understanding of how the world works. It's yeah. learning about other people, other cultures, other ways of looking at the world, seeing that people see things really differently than you and having that day in and day out. That It's that entire experience. It's also the people that you meet in college who may forge connections yeah. later in life. I think a lot of the thing about going to, say, an Ivy League school is you're ending up with the movers and shakers or the children of the movers and shakers of the entire planet and forging those connections. But if you were to go, say, a Hampshire, there's plenty of folks who have either, you know, legacy with that school or will have a future legacy out of that school that you as a student would have forged a connection with. And who knows where that partnership may bring you in the future. Well, and the opportunities to, you know, I, I'd want to push back a little bit on whether the value of college is about making connections with the, the, <laughs> the inheritors of great wealth so that you can, you know, trail along. Not for Hampshire so much, but, but there But I think the idea of that you that you end up building networks of creative, intelligent, ambitious, excited people who want to go out and change the world that you might not find as easily if you didn't go to a place that attracted, concentrated those people and asked them to learn to work together, right? So I see a lot of our graduates who go off and, you know, engage in activism and, and form organizations and found companies with other people that they met at Hampshire, right? So that, that's certainly a huge advantage of college education. And Hampshire in particular, you can witness up and down the valley where there are different like enclaves of businesses and things yeah. that have fo formed completely out of Hampshire. Absolutely. This conversation raises two issues for me. Let, let me quote back one more sentence that, mm -hmm. from, that's attributed to you in this New York Times piece on Sunday. Quote, the majority of our students come and leave because they want to be activists, artists, educators, or entrepreneurs, said Edward Wingenbach, Hampshire's president. None of these career paths have early income success. So I, I think I get that. Yeah. Um, and it raises two issues for me. But the first one is, and it goes back to, really for me, an article that uh, a local author, Barry Worth, wrote for New England Monthly Magazine years and years ago. And it raised the issue as a cover story, I said, why is college so expensive? Mm -hmm. And it goes through all the reasons that college is so expensive, and it looks at all of the things that colleges are expected to provide now in terms of facilities and offerings and so on, above and beyond education. Uh, I, put, I put that in air quotes. And his conclusion, or the conclusion of this article is, it's so expensive because we want it to be in a weird way, which is that we want all these things. We want the fancy uh, uh, sports facilities, and we want the fields, and we want the manicured lawns, and we want this, and we want that, and all of which costs money. Um, and I'm wondering what you think and what your reaction is to the fact we were talking about before we went on the air, which is some colleges are just enormously expensive compared to when I went to college, compared to when Monty went to college. Right. So I think there's two things going on there that, that are – one is, yeah, the, 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 to deliver a quality education is a really labor-intensive thing, right? It, it's not something that you can, you know, that, that you can outsource, right? So you, you really need – you need highly trained, um, highly educated, dedicated, and devoted professionals, uh, both in the faculty and the people who are working with students in the, in the senior staff – so it's a really labor-intensive uh, enterprise, much like healthcare, right? There's only so much you can outsource in healthcare uh, that isn't about the people that are, that are doing that work. And so healthcare costs tend to go up as well. So if you want that quality experience, it's going to cost some amount of money. The, but the biggest driver... Right, because you may, for healthcare, just to follow that, yeah. you may need a one-on-one -on -one or a two-on-well healthcare provider to a right. patient. And that cost for, for simply the salaries and benefits for two people taking care of one patient 24 hours a day is hugely expensive. Right. Uh, in college, the analogy holds, if you want to have a small class of intensely involved students really involved with the professor and you have six, maybe six right. students instead of 100 students in a lecture hall, that's expensive. Yeah. And then the other thing that, that is driving that cost is that, I mentioned this at the beginning, this, this huge burden shifting. If you look at the amount of the cost of attending college that was covered by state and federal sources 20, 30, especially 40 years ago, uh, and look at it now, that's, there's been this dramatic disinvestment in higher education, and that shift has moved with, into 
directly to the students. Uh, and so you know, we talk about the, the, the significant increase over the rate of inflation of a college education. Well, actually, the cost to deliver a college education hasn't actually increased that dramatically. Really? What's increased is the portion of that cost that is expected to be covered as a private good rather than a public social good. And you point out in this, and you were quoted in this article, you make this point. If anyone's tempted to suggest that the place, meaning Hampshire, is filled with rich dilettantes, he noted 36% of the people in this year's entering class are eligible to receive Pell Grants for lower-income students. And those are grants, not loans? Uh, yeah, that's the federal Pell Grant that goes to low- and moderate-income students. Uh, that is an out-and-out -out grant that, that you get to go to college. And that's uh, just at Hampshire, or is that across the board? No, that's across. That's a federal program. About half of all students I meant are, the 36%. Are, oh, the 36%. Yeah, that's, that's for, a private, for a private selective institution, 36% is actually quite high. Um, I'd, I'd like it to be better across the board for, for particularly elite institutions that have the resources to make this kind of education available. And I know a lot of people are working on it, but it'd be nice if they worked faster. Do you think that the uh, experience of college, the, the, the experience of being with these uh, learners and professors and educators, uh, that on-campus uh, life is being undersold in this in environment or in the presentations of what college has to offer? I do. I think that, you know, we often, you know, we often let the conversation be determined by the kind of metrics that Ron Lieber, the author of this article, raised as the frame, right? How much is your return on investment? And we measure return on investment in income. And I think that's part of, but shouldn't be most of the conversation. I also think it's important for us to consider individual students, what their goals ultimately are going to be. So one of the things you raised earlier is, you know, look at, look at, at Hampshire students. We did a survey of all of our entering students, right? And the thing that they, that the two things they most want to do after their college education, what they want to come to college for, they want to do creative, expressive work, and they want to participate in social and political change, right? They want to make the world better and more beautiful. And that's overwhelmingly their top priority, right? And if you want that, you know, that's, that's what a college education at a place like Hampshire is going to let you do. The financial rewards will come when you do that work well, right? There are other people for whom their primary concern is going to be some kind of return on their investment, right? If you want to work on it, if you want to go to college so you can work for uh, McKinsey Consulting or an investment bank, there are places where you can go to do that as well, right? Um, so I think there's a part of this depends on what students want out of their education and what kind of what kind of college they should then choose. When I was a liberal arts major coming out of a school, I got a piece of sage advice from one of my mentors where he said, from a financial perspective, when in your 30s you make your way, in your 40s you make your hay, where you may have to work for the the better part of a decade at this thing that you love before you actually reap some financial benefits yeah. to it. And I think that the short-term games, as, as we were saying here, in six years might not be a long enough path to be looking at in regards to the importance of what this could mean for your future or the future of the planet. Right. I received a letter yesterday from uh, a, a, a staff person at Antioch College where I went and where I graduated, um, and she's retiring. And she said, the statement that is most meaningful to me after these 16 years that she's worked at the college, she said, what I hear from alums time after time, and it's the same thing I know you hear from your Hampshire alums, which is this college changed my life, changed my life for the better. We're speaking with Hampshire College President Ed Wingenbach. We're going to talk about Hampshire and its future after this. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. the afternoon buzz with legendary civil rights attorney from Ashfield, Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz will bring you his take on the day's news, plus arts, culture, and politics from the Valley weekday afternoons at 4. Brought to you by Lundgren, family run since 1964. Greenfield's largest automotive group is the place to buy your next Honda, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, or Ram. Experience it in Greenfield. The afternoon buzz, 101.5 WHMP.
Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. And I'm Mortgage Originator Kimberly Gates. If you're looking to buy a home, now's the perfect time to save on your Greenfield Co-op mortgage. That's right. We can save you up to $1,000 on your mortgage closing costs. Don't miss the opportunity to receive a $750 closing credit plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you. Chat with one of our experienced mortgage originators at any of our Hampshire and Franklin County locations to get started. Or if you're ready, visit our new website at bestlocalbank.com and start your application online. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Kimberly Gates, or me, Missy Tatro, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by September 30th. Be a first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $1,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley co-op tonight the pines theater at look park in florence will be transported back in time to the 90s for performance 32 never mind the 90s a live tribute musical fundraiser all your favorite local hero bands will be performing as their favorite bands from the 90s spanish for hitchhiking as pearl jam winter pills as the sundays soul magnets as miss lauren hill sun parade as elliot smith gamaya diggs as whitney houston problems with dragons as nirvana bunnies as they might be giants and so many more each year in august the northampton arts council and the parent teacher organizations of northampton's public school system join forces to raise funds for arts enrichment in the schools and our community for the premier end of the summer musical party performance 32 never mind the 90s Tonight, starting at 4 p.m., Pines Theater, Look Park. Tickets available in person at State Street Food Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in Florence. Or buy online, hamparts.org. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Ed Wingenbach, the president of Hampshire College. So, Ed, because I know you don't like being called Mr. President or <laughs> right. President Wingenbach. So, Ed, um... Hampshire College, the new year is beginning this week. I'd like to know what steps uh, Hampshire has accomplished in its resurgence and where the college stands at mm-hmm. this point. I guess the big question is the health of the college. So yeah. help us help us understand that. Absolutely. So we're on a we're on a very good trajectory, as you as you know, because we've had several conversations about this over the years. Uh, we're on a multi year plan to get back to a sustainable place, and we're right on track. Uh, we're in the middle of that plan. Um, two, the two biggest factors uh, in the, the health of the college, first of all, our enrollment, right? We needed to, need to continue to, to rebuild the, the enrollment on campus. Um, because you missed an entire class. Because, yeah, my predecessor didn't admit a class, and that, that creates a large, uh, a large gap in your, in your student body. So uh, we have... Coming up this week, about 240 new first-year students and another 38 or so transfer students. Um, that compares to last year, we had about 135 entering students. So, you know, there's a big jump from, la- from from last year and a big jump that last year from the year before. So our trajectory Being a liberal arts major and be able to do addition, uh, 278 versus 135, that's a big jump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, that, that, th- that 135 is more like... Including a transfers about 170, but yeah, it's still it's it's, a lot. it's still a, we're you know roughly 75 percent increases the last couple of years, 100 to 75, 75 to 100 percent increase. We need to do a similar, not quite as large increase next year. We'd like to be in the you know get ourselves to the mid 300s. I think we're on the path to do that, and so that's one good thing. And you know part of what's going on there is people. Uh, students are really excited about what they can do at Hampshire that they can't do anywhere else. Uh, the other element of that plan is substantial fundraising uh, to support our operations. So as we regrow our enrollment, you know, we need to invest more in faculty and staff and opportunities for students uh, than, f- than the number of students we have can support, right? 
And it's been amazing the, 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 the capacity of our alums and people who care about the college to, to support us in that way. So we're at, we've raised over $34 million in the last three years. Uh, in direct financial support that goes immediately to the operations of the college. This is thirty-four it's, million. It's not for a building. It's not for some named opportunity. Is, this is money you're spending it now. Is, yeah, thirty-four million dollars because people want Hampshire to be successful. They believe in what we're doing. They want us to help transform higher education in the ways that that are that really matter. And we hope to raise sixty million. So, and we're more than halfway to that goal. So those two those two indicators are, are really strong. Uh, I think we've been we have a we have a lot of enthusiasm on campus, uh, and then you know the most important thing is you know what are we doing right? And so again, we've talked about this several times that this shift of focus to place the the really important questions of the 21st century at the center of our curriculum and have our faculty and our students working together to try to show how the liberal arts are essential to understanding how to address our responsibilities in the face of a changing climate or how to disrupt and dismantle white supremacy or how to deal with the definition of truth in a post-truth era. These are sort of the, the questions that people care about uh, and students want to work on right away. And in Hampshire, they're able to do that. And that's part of what's driving all of the excitement around enrollment and external support. Because students can create their own individual educational yeah. plan. And within that context, the questions that they're concerned about and they want to do, they can address those and build their own course, course of study around that as well. Maybe using the Hogwarts model, liberal arts is like defense against the conservative arts. Mm. As in Hogwarts, you learn defense against the dark arts. Yeah. I, you, 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 can, you can do the synonym there, right? The, I think the, so. The dark arts, the conservative arts, that kind of mean yeah. the same thing. Liberal right? arts. Could, yeah. yeah. There is a parallel there. No. Now, <laughs> we should be clear. Like, li liberal is the, the traditional version of the liberal arts means, you know, to expand one's mind. It doesn't, didn't used to have a kind of partisan sense to it. But, you know, I think you're, you're, you're kind of in jest, but I think it's true that there's a, there's a growing sense that what the liberal arts traditionally is focused on creating open-mindedness and a, a more just and equitable society and supporting democracy has kind of started to become a partisan element. And it's, it's, a, it's a problem for American higher education. Uh, but we should still, we have to do what our mission is, right? We have to pursue that. And I go back to the, you know, this, this quote from there, this survey of our students, what do our students want to do? They want to work for social justice. They want to work for to make a, a better, more equitable world. They want to do creative and artistic work. They want, to, they want to fight against inequality, right? They want a liberal arts education because it does the work of democracy. They also want to be filmmakers and scientists and authors and educators right. and But that's yeah, all part of it. it and those are like. all the ways that you do that work, right? So there, there's, the, there's the what you're trying to accomplish in the world, and then there's the way that you're doing it. Right, and both of those have to be combined in, in in integral ways, and that's you know what a liberal arts education does in ways that no other approach can. Colbert famously once said, "Truth has a, a well-known liberal bias." <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also that great quote from uh, uh, Jonathan Haar's book, uh, "Civil Action." He's quoting the defense attorney. He's asking about what about, what's the truth of all this, and he says, "The truth is at the bottom of a bottomless pit," <laughs> which is. Uh, a requirement for delving deep, I mean, and saying it's really hard to know and it's a complex enterprise to find yeah. truth. Uh, I want to go back to this question of the $60 million, which you're trying to raise, sure. um, and spending it as you go along because there is this uh, uh, interesting piece for Hampshire, which is in order to be the college that you want to be, you need to invest in people. Mm -hmm. um, in order to have be able to invest in people, you need the money. Uh, in order to have the money, Hampshire, which is dependent significantly in the long run um, on uh, uh, tuition and uh, and grants and loans and so on, um, you need to have those numbers of people that are right sized for the college and, and its uh, physical plant. So what is the number? How many do you have? And when do you think you will get to, the college will get to this kind of equipoise of, yes, right. we have the right size, we have the right number of students, we have this enormously dedicated and devoted faculty. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So our our ultimate goal or in the short run here is to be uh, have a between 11 and 1,200 students, right? If we have 
if we're in that range, somewhere around 11 to 1200 students, uh, that, that gives us a solid foundation uh, for a, a balanced operating budget. And how um, many do you have now? Right now, this year we're probably about 550. Uh, part because this is the this is the low point of the trough, right? That that class of thirteen the class that students wasn't there, right? In twenty fall of twenty nineteen, this was this is their final year, right? So we just graduated the last big class from pre nineteen, uh, and we're bringing in now a large class, and so we need to you know over the next couple of years we should go to seven hundred and then nine hundred, and so by twenty twenty six or so we should be in that range, uh, and we're building, uh, we're, you know we're we're gonna. We're building our faculty and our other resources kind of alongside that increase in enrollment. So right now we have we're, we have more people than we could, we could support at this enrollment. And at some point, they'll kind of come into alignment as our enrollment grows. Um, you know, the, the, what I think is really important to, to, to emphasize about this is that, you know, while Hampshire is our main source of revenue is tuition, uh, we can't allow ourselves to be only dependent on tuition because, you know, going back to this this idea of economic diversity, if you want to be able to make your education affordable to students and you want to be a driver of social, uh, you know, of, of uh, social improvement, right, and push back against inequality, you can't, you, you have to, you have to, you have to create a, a, a student population that isn't that is not primarily wealthy students, right? And so we need to be able to supplement that with financial aid. And so we need to continue to raise funds, both to support our operations, but also to support our students, right? And so we will continue to do that. Can you tell us uh, approximately, uh, I know you did this with 38% or 34% of received Pell Grants. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what the incoming class looks like at Hampshire? Absolutely, yeah. So our entering class this, for this fall, you know, about thirty-six percent of them are eligible for Pell, Pell grants, which is a it's a which is a shorthand for low to moderate income students. Um, roughly, roughly thirty percent of the students are uh, uh, black, indigenous, or persons of color. Um, we are. It's you know the, one of the interesting things about about Hampshire is um, we are a we are a place that is particularly welcoming to people who are have a variety of ways of thinking about gender and and neurodiversity. And so, something like sixty eight percent of our entering students uh, are ha identify in with a variety of different ways of expressing their own genders. Um, and a majority of our students identify as LGBTQ. Um, about a third of our students are neurodiverse, right? So it's a it's a the, the students who are who are choosing and coming to Hampshire College are looking for a place that is not just welcoming of, but kind of defined by um, a, a way of not being in the majority in the world. Right, that you can come to a place where you you are you are not just included, not just made welcome, but kind of create the the dominant culture right it's very it's very countercultural in that way still right what it means to be countercultural has changed over the last 50 years right but that's and you see that when you visit hampshire right what i get from hampshire and what i think is so important is this sense of welcoming whoever you are whatever you want to do whatever your interests wherever life may take you at this college you can you are welcome absolutely absolutely We've been speaking with Ed Wingenbeck, who's the president of Hampshire College. Thanks so much for taking time, particularly this very busy week. We really appreciate it. Love you coming in. Oh, Thank you so very much. Thanks for much. inviting me. It's always a pleasure. This is Bill Newman, For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Massachusetts state and federal leaders, including Governor Charlie Baker and Congressman Richard Neal, will join the CEO of Amtrak this afternoon in a train ride from Boston to Springfield to highlight the need for an east-west rail link in the state. Earlier this month, the governor signed off on an $11.4 billion infrastructure bond bill that included funding for the east-west rail project. 
There could be a new campground coming to Williamsburg, although there is opposition to the idea. The owners of the Beaverbrook Golf Course have applied for a special permit with the town's Zoning Board of Appeals to put up a campground of up to 50 sites. Some residents have started a Change.org online petition, saying it's not an appropriate place for a campground. The Zoning Board of Appeals will discuss the application at their meeting tonight at 5 p.m. UMass Amherst is receiving some high honors for their food. For the sixth year in a row, the Princeton Review has given them top honors for best campus food in the country. The rankings are based on surveys of 160,000 students at the schools being ranked. And a pioneering broadcaster and legend in the radio industry has passed away. Saga Communications Chief Executive Officer Ed Christian died Friday after a brief illness. Christian founded Saga in 1986 and guided the company through an era of unprecedented growth and success. Saga currently owns 194 radio stations, including four stations of the Western Mass Radio Group in Greenfield and Northampton Radio Group, including WRSI and WHMP. Mixture of sun and clouds this morning. Scattered showers and thunderstorms start as early as noon today and continue into the afternoon. A high of 78 to 82. Watch out for a lingering shower, even a rumble of thunder possible early this evening, then clearing. Overnight low of 60 to 66. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 84 to 88. Up near 90 on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El doctor Anthony Fauci, el principal experto en enfermedades infecciosas del país que se convirtió en un nombre familiar y en objeto de ataques partidistas durante la pandemia de COVID-19, anunció el lunes que dejará el gobierno federal en diciembre después de más de cinco décadas. Fauci dirige el Instituto Nacional de Alergias y Enfermedades Infecciosas, es el principal asesor médico del presidente Joe Biden y también dirige un laboratorio que estudia el sistema inmunológico. Si bien la pandemia de COVID-19 lo presentó a millones de estadounidenses, ha hablado directamente a la nación sobre numerosos brotes, incluidos el VIH-Sida, el SARS, la gripe pandémica, el ébola y los ataques de antrax de 2001. Al anunciar su partida, Fauci, de 81 años, llamó a sus papeles el honor de su vida, pero dijo que era hora de seguir el próximo capítulo de mi carrera. Conocido por su franqueza y por su capacidad para traducir información médica compleja al lenguaje cotidiano, Fauci ha sido un asesor clave de siete presidentes, empezando por Ronald Reagan. En otras informaciones, el expresidente Donald Trump solicitó el lunes a un tribunal federal que impida temporalmente que el FBI revise los materiales que incautó hace dos semanas en su casa de Florida hasta que se pueda designar un maestro especial para supervisar la revisión. A veces se puede designar a un maestro especial en casos muy delicados para revisar los materiales incautados y asegurarse de que los investigadores no revisen información privilegiada. La búsqueda de Mar-a-Lago del 8 de agosto marcó una escalada significativa en una de las muchas investigaciones federales y estatales que Trump enfrenta desde su tiempo en el cargo y en negocios privados. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Next Monday, 7 o'clock at the Lava Center in Greenfield, Doug Selwyn will have his book launch for his new book, of which he is the editor, the title of which is At the Center of All Possibilities, Transforming Education for Our Children's Future. Interesting title. I'd like to start there, At the Center of All Possibilities. Why that title, and what do you mean by it? Well, um, actually, the the... Title comes from um, a theater class I did a long, long time ago um, that was focused on um, on clown, actually. And the uh, teacher of that class talked about clown as a kind of Zen master level of um, being at the center of all possibility, having sort of shedding anything that's not essential and being free and able to move in any direction. Um, and so that's when I thought about it in terms of education, that's what I wanted for my kids, the kids I taught, that they were free to make choices that were good for them and able to move in whatever direction called to them. And so. And are you talking about students K through 12 or talking about college students, post-grad? I'm talking, talking about? about all of us. 
that that we are um, as as aware of ourselves and as as informed as we can be about ourselves and the world, and able to make choices that serve us and and our community's environment without having to drag a lot of baggage around that doesn't apply to us. So, so helping people learn what they need so they are free and able to act um, most efficiently. We are speaking with Doug Selwyn, his new book, At the Center of All Possibilities, Transforming Education for Our Children's Future. Doug taught for some 14 years in the Seattle Public Schools, then he moved to teacher education. He taught at Antioch University in Seattle and then at 10 years at SUNY Plattsburgh, where he was a professor of education. He retired in 2017 and has written several books on education, including this most recent one, At the Center of All Possibilities. The book launch is Monday at the Lava Center, 7 o'clock. So let me ask you this, uh, and I'd like to get to uh, the heart of the book, um, but I want to put it in the context of one of the later chapters in the books, which is about assessment, mm-hmm. and because I am absolutely moved by a lot of what you write, and you're the editor of this book, um, and you talk about possibilities and how to transform K-12 education and how to make college meaningful in a way that Ed Wingenbach uh, president of Hampshire College, who's just here, talked about, I think, in detail and in a very moving way. Uh, when it comes, though, to K-12, to mm-hmm. um, there are, I think, some would argue, um, and I think with in a convincing way, that there are some essential skills that you need in order to be a learner. You need to be able to read and to comprehend and, therefore, to use those skills, analytical skills, which you want to teach. And your section seven in the book is titled, and I think appropriately, but what about assessment, question mark? And mm-hmm. then you discuss it. So discuss for us. Tell us, what about assessment? How do we do it? And it's a particularly poignant topic this week because last week, the uh, yes, we were all here rolling our eyes, uh, the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education in, in Massachusetts raised the MCAS scores what the score needs to be in order to achieve a high school diploma. A big mistake, but that's what Bessie did. So mm-hmm. tell us your views about assessment. How do you do it, and what are we assessing? Well, of course, it's a, an immensely complicated question, but the bottom line is that we have to think about the purpose of education before we can assess, right? Because if you don't know what you're going for, then how can you assess for it? And we have not asked the question, what do we want for our children? What do we want for education? Um, We haven't asked that in a very long time. We just keep doing what we've done. And when I asked my students at university who are coming into teaching, so what's the purpose of schools? They say, well, it's what we always do. It's just what you do. And what should we learn? Well, it's, there's this curriculum. And when I ask, so why is it that curriculum and not some other curriculum? It's what you do. So the first step in terms of assessment is saying, what are we about? Why are we doing this? It's the responsibility of every generation to educate the generation that comes after so that they have what they need um, in order to survive and thrive and live on a planet that does that. So the first step in terms of answering the question about assessment is saying, why are we here? What are we doing in education? Okay. What do kids need to know? And then um, determining with, I would say, with the children, what is it they want to learn? What is it they need to learn? And then developing the assessment that they need in order to say, are we getting closer to what we value? So rather than having assessment serve some mythical learning that the state throws out, I think the focus is much more on who are the kids, where are they starting from? Where, what are the kids who, are, who I am working with? What do they come in knowing? What do they come in not knowing? What, what, where are they? And then the assessment is how do we build towards where, where, where they need to be? And I don't think that's the same for every child. I mean, I think every child is at whatever point they're at in their development and working with them to move forward on that is most essential. Now, the question about standardized testing and stuff, it's usually framed as either we're doing standardized tests or 
there's no assessment at all, which is absurd because teachers assess every moment of the day. I mean, when you're in the classroom, you are assessing constantly. Are, they, are the kids with me? Are all the kids with me? Is this person who I know trans uh, takes longer to process things, getting what they need in order to process what they need? Um, so assessment happens in a lot of different ways. It's not a, t a test. Not only is the MCAS an imperfect and, and awful instrument for assessment, but it doesn't reach many of the things that we value in our kids, which includes how are they with each other? How are they as critical thinkers? How are they dealing with their own frustrations and their, their process and learning? Um, there are just so many different aspects to what we want for our children um, that assessment is multifaceted. It can't, can't be reduced to one instrument. And that instrument really is, is um, well, it's, it's sort of the descendant of the sort of racist assessment policies around 1900, the eugenics movement that said there is one kind of intelligence that's valued and um, we're going to use some instrument that we develop to prove that Northern European white people are the smartest folks and that other people are less than. I mean, that was the purpose of those assessment instruments. We're still basically working on that. That was a part of the book that I found particularly interesting and a lot that I did not know. So can you give us a deeper dive into that and how those kinds of standardized tests, assessment tools, uh, how they have been used over years and why fundamentally I think they haven't changed very much. Well, they haven't, they haven't changed very much because they're serving the people in power. I mean, one of the, one of the um, assumptions about education and one of the I guess frames to put out is that it's the great equalizer, that it's leveling the playing field, it's it's giving everybody a sense of possibility and all that, and, and the Horatio Alger, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and anybody can become president. Well, Lord knows where that got us. But, um, but the point is that not only is there less movement in the U.S. than almost anywhere from people who are poor to people who are raising up to a, an upper level, I mean, there's almost no movement that way, but the idea that education is actually the great equalizer, um, I think, can be really challenged to say that education serves those in power and keeps people in their place. Essentially, those people who are in the poorest communities get, get an education that kind of keeps them there. And those people who come from the wealthy, wealthiest communities are getting an education that helps them become leaders. Um, and so education is not necessarily serving the people. It's more like the people are being served uh, or sort of funneled into an appropriate spot in, 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 in the society. So I think the whole idea of, of assessment and serving kids, having the educational system serve the children rather than the other way around, um, is crucial, and, and, and assessment is part of that. We're speaking with Doug Selwyn, his new book, At the Center of All Possibilities, Transforming Education for Our Children's Future. The book launch is next Monday at the Lava Center in Greenfield at 7 o'clock. When we come back, I'm going to ask this question. The book actually is optimistic in the sense that it tells us how children, in fact, can be, uh, have education available to them that will, in fact, transform their lives. We're going to hear about that right after this break. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is going back to traditions here. Uh, this is Port Eskeg, eight-year-old single malt scotch. So it's actual scotch? This is Scotland scotch. Mm. Scotchy scotch scotch. This is an Isla single malt, peatier in style. This one does not suffer supply chain issues because you wouldn't be giving it to us if it did, right? Correct. It says Port Eskeg, which is a location, but it's an independent bottler that gives them their whiskey. Because there's so many different approaches on whiskey, I 
I really try and hit everything with a very open mind as far as what can be good. This one got 95 points at the, the Ultimate Spirits Challenge. Well, I think this is very good. And how much is this single mall? This is 66.99, so it's kind of right in that low to mid entry level price point. Find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at State Street. Hi, this is Nick Seaman from the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst. We're now open seven days a week from 8 a.m. And we have live music every Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 1. We continue to make our great sandwiches, bake our wonderful croissants, Danish breads and desserts, and brew Dean's Beans Organic Coffee. We also have a freezer full of entrees to go that will help you simplify your life. And if you're having a party, let us know how we can help you make it a success. Just call our catering department to talk about menu options. On a political note, always remember that the Second Amendment says, quote, well regulated. Make sure you call your congressman and senator and demand that they do their jobs. We're the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst, having fun with food and politics since 1986. Save 30% at WHMP.com. Help a local baby stay fresh. One in three local families sometimes have to choose between diapers and feeding their kids. Let's wipe out diaper need in our communities. Donate diapers and wipes or cash through August 31st during the United Way Diaper Drive. Drop off new or clean opened packages of diapers or pull-ups at locations across Franklin and Hampshire counties. Find out how and where to donate at uw-fh.org forward slash diaper drive. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Doug Selwyn. His new book is At the Center of All Possibilities, Transforming Education for Our Children's Future. The book launch, a discussion, book signing uh, will occur next Monday at the Lava Center in Greenfield at 7 o'clock. Again, 7 o'clock next Monday at the Lava Center. Doug, in your book, you talk about meritocracy and you say this, you uh, say that there is a myth of meritocracy, that those who get better grades, and I'm quoting you now, get better grades or scores on tests are simply smarter than the other kids, a persistent myth that ignores what researchers have found about the impact of inequality and other factors in our lives. Tell us more about that and what your research shows and what this book comes to as a conclusion about that. Okay, well, first of all, it's not my research, but I'm, I'm quoting the research, um, an extraordinary um, pair of researchers, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, who are British researchers. They wrote an extraordinary book called The Spirit Level. And what they found was that inequality in a society, the greater the inequality, um, the consequences that it plays out in virtually every aspect of life are profound. And so... The more inequality, the more, um, the shorter lifespan people have, the more likely they are going to get disease, the more likely the prison population is going to be a higher percentage, the more people are going to have drug use. Just almost virtually everything is affected by inequality. And they did, they looked at states as well as countries around the world. So they did the 50 states here and found the same thing, that the greater the inequality in a state, when we're talking ec uh, economics here, the greater inequality, the, the more problems across the board. And so people come to school, um, if they are poor, if they are dealing with, um, well, let's, let's just keep it at poor, they are working uphill. They are more likely to struggle with family issues. They're more likely to struggle with um, educational issues they are going to come to school with fewer resources. They're going to be going to schools that have fewer resources. They're going to have teachers who are not as, probably didn't go to Yale or Harvard necessarily, um, but teachers who are finding work where they can find it. And so they don't necessarily perform as well in traditional measurements as, as some of their well better resourced um, peers, but it's not an indication of how smart they are, but they're coming to school hungry. They're coming to school 
um, from families that don't have broadband or that, that have one computer for five kids. They are dealing with family issues um, that maybe came out of COVID because their parents had to go to work um, during COVID and maybe they experienced more loss. I mean, there's just more, there are more issues to deal with um, when you are coming from a lower income. That doesn't mean the kids aren't smart. It doesn't mean they can't succeed, but we know from those test results that, that we all roll our eyes at that it's really a measure of zip code. It's really a measure of family wealth, family privilege, and the, and the well-being of the district that they come from. And so when we look at a, a result and say it's all about the school, it's all about the kid, we're really missing something fundamental. Yeah, tell me more about that because it's not all about the school. It's about uh, the, the community. It's about the resources. It's about health. Interesting facts in, this, in your book about how the United States is not the healthiest country in the world and we do not have the longest longevity. We don't have longevity uh, compared to other industrialized uh, societies all of that. But we do focus on the school and we say we want the kids to succeed at school because we have so much invested in education. I'm wondering if you're saying in your book that we can't succeed just by focusing on the schools or whether we can focus on the schools and use that as sort of an incision point to try to improve equality. I would say it's both and that we need to focus. I mean, there are many things we can do in schools. The, the book I wrote a couple of years ago was focused on the health and well-being of kids. It was called All Children Are All Our Children. And what I looked at there was what does it take to have healthy children? And what it took was recognizing we have to have health for families. We have to make sure there's you know, family leave and, and good health care for women when they're pregnant and, and for the first years of life. We have to make sure that stress and trauma uh, that we address those, and environmental degradation, all of those things go into how well a child's life is going to go. And that the first couple of years of life and health predict close to 50% of illnesses that kids focus on later in later years. And we can't do that alone in schools. So there are lots of things we can do in schools, but if we don't have healthy communities, we're not going to have healthy schools. If we have inequality, if we have environmental degradation where the poor are living near toxic waste dumps and all of that stuff, that lead that, that is still prevalent in a lot of neighborhoods, all of that stuff um, affects whether kids can learn or not. And if we just pretend that we can fix things without fixing the schools or, or just fix schools without fixing the community, I think we're going to miss the boat. We've been speaking with Doug Selwyn, his new book, At the Center of All Possibilities, Transforming Education for Our Children's Future. There will be a book signing, a discussion, a reading uh, next Monday, 7 o'clock at the Lava Center in Greenfield. Really interesting book. You can, of course, buy it at your local independent bookstore and, of course, attend the book launch next Monday, 7 o'clock at the Lava Center. Doug Selwyn, thanks so much for being with us, and thank you for your book. Thank you, Bill. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 